Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Jungle. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Commercial free. There's a new Captain America in town, and I don't know about you, but I'm with him until the end of the line. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier finale brings all the players together for a big, exploding meetup in New York, and Sam Wilson is out here leading the way in the red, white, and blue. Directed by Kerry Scoggin, the season's last episode does right by the MCU's first black Captain America, plus a new future for John Walker, and we finally learn who the power broker is. Nah, just kidding. I think we all figured that out a long time ago. We'll add all this up and try to get an idea of what Captain America 4 could be about. But before we get into all of that, I have to warn you. We're about to spoil the entire thing right now. So if you haven't seen it just yet or if you just don't want to know, now would be the time to pop on that slick new Wakandan wingsuit and make for the wild blue yonder until we're done here. Black Captain America, huh? Damn right. All right, now that we're past the spoiler warning, here's the big reveal. Sam Wilson is Captain America. Now, we all suspected it at the end of the last episode that Box from Wakanda did indeed contain his new gear and a new look. We'll break down this look and compare it to the comic suit that inspired it, but you know what, we'll get into that in just a second. First, let's recap how we got here. The Flag Smashers and Batroc are in New York. They've taken the entire GRC hostage. The GRC, of course, is the big multinational governing body about to vote on resetting the world borders after the blip. The Flag Smashers hate this and are trying to stop it by taking the entire GRC hostage. He's here. Sam also doesn't really believe the GRC's vote will be a good thing, but he refuses to allow the Flag Smashers to go through with their plan. With Sam in the air, Bucky's the boots on the ground, and oh, that's Sharon Carter, who, of course, is also on hand for the big action set piece to close out this season. Quick side note, uh, we gotta talk about Sharon, guys, for real. So let us finish this recap and we'll get into the Sharon stuff, trust me. So keep those theories handy. Anyway, fisticuffs ensue. Sam shows off what this suit can do and faces off against Batroc and, oh, looks like this Frenchman is 0 for 2 and getting his ass kicked by Captain America. 
Meanwhile, the Flag Smashers take pretty much the whole GRC hostage by herding them into some paddy wagons and a helicopter. And pretty much every place anyone tries to safely stash the GRC members, the Flag Smashers have their own people there already. Sam chases down the helicopter while Bucky chases the paddy wagon. Now, did we mention that Sam's new suit includes a new Red Wing? Because it does, and it's a bit more equipped than the last one was. Meanwhile, Carly and the Flag Smashers are regrouping in a nearby construction zone, and Carly's talking about dying for the cause, and the rest of them are all like, well, do we have to? Thanks to some fancy flying and some cool new features on his suit, Sam saves everyone in two helicopters. Meantime, Bucky is really out here just throwing himself into his work. And while he gets the GRC members out of the paddy wagon, guess who shows up? That's John Walker, sporting a homemade shield and veins full of super soldier serum, ready to mix things up. Another quick side note, if you dig Sam's new Captain America suit, wait until you see how John Walker ends up in this episode. More on him in a minute. For now, back to the recap. Long story short, Sam, Bucky, and John Walker work together to kick the Flag Smashers' asses while Sharon helps in the background by being as shady as possible. By the end of the big fight, the GRC is saved, Sharon kills Batroc to cover up her tracks, and Sam ultimately defeats Carly by refusing to fight her. Sharon doesn't, though. She has no problem ending this thing by shooting Carly in the back, which honestly seems more about covering her tracks than helping Sam. Bucky and Walker capture the rest of the Flag Smashers. They're getting sent off to the raft, and nope, never mind, because they're all dead now, thanks to Zemo's butler, who honestly, whatever Zemo is paying this guy, he definitely needs to give him a raise. You just don't understand. I'm a black man carrying the Stars and Stripes. What don't I understand? Anyway, Sam still believes in Carly's cause and convinces the GRC to delay their vote and work harder to actually help the people of the world struggling to rebuild after the blip. To end the episode, Sam connects with Isaiah Bradley, taking him and his future superhero grandson to the Smithsonian to view its newest exhibit of the first black Captain America. Now they'll never forget what you did for this country. Alors maintenant, Power Broker, tu vas devoir me payer quatre fois ce que tu me devais. Or, je vais dire au monde entier qui tu es vraiment. Okay? And there's that reveal. Now, if you hadn't guessed already, Sharon is the Power Broker. Or at least Batroc seemed to think so before she made sure he'd keep his mouth shut forever. I don't do blackmail. And that's important because though we now know the truth, the people in the MCU who knew that Sharon was indeed the power broker and had reason to expose her are now dead. Now, neither Sam nor Bucky realized this yet because Sam comes through on his promise to clear her name in the States. And right after she has a little mid-credit ceremony with senators about this, she immediately hops on the phone trying to sell state secrets. So on the surface, yes, Sharon is a full-blown villain now, operating right under everyone's noses. Now, I'm sure we are not alone in thinking that there's always the chance that this Sharon could be a scroll. Now, that's always a chance now that the scrolls are in play, but we think it's more likely that Sharon is still peddling power as the power broker, even though she no longer has the benefit of a mad scientist creating super soldier serum for her. We're going to need... A U.S. agent 
She said it! She said the thing! Anyway, speaking of the serum, this episode also leaves John Walker in a pretty good spot, considering he totally bloodied Captain America's shield just a few episodes ago. Now, the big reveal here is that after his heroics to help thwart the Flag Smashers attack in New York, he's back in the game. He's U.S. agent. Now, the officialness of this is left pretty ambiguous here. I mean, this scene takes place in the same room where U.S. senators do all kinds of official stuff, so it feels like this is up and up. The thing is, no senators are actually there, and it's Contessa Valentina Allegra... You know what? I'm just going to call her Val. Don't call me that. Copy. Whatever! You know what point is? Val is the one who christens John Walker the U.S. agent, so how aware the U.S. government actually is about all of this certainly is still in question. John Walker certainly earned his keep this episode, showing up on scene in New York just at the right time and actually fighting competently and not fueled by murderous rage. Though with that said, if he tried to kill anyone with that generic shield he made in his garage, it probably would just break. Tying up loose threads, Bucky seems to have gotten some closure, Zemo is once again cooling his heels in the raft, and if it seems like Marvel Studios is going to make more stuff about these characters, well... Captain America 4 is coming. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier finale hadn't even been out for 24 hours when news broke that Marvel Studios is reassembling the team, developing Captain America 4. No release date for this just yet, but this is great news. More so than WandaVision, Falcon and the... Uh, sorry, Captain America and the Winter Soldier is definitely wide open for a sequel, and it looks like this new film will keep this story going. Now, obviously, there are tons of ways they could go with it, most of them having to do with Sharon being the power broker. Now, she's in a unique position now that she's been reinstated, and she seems totally willing to use that to her advantage. Now, what's the worst that could happen if she got caught? She'd just become an enemy of the state again. And just because Zemo is locked up on the raft doesn't mean he's totally off the board. Bucky broke him out of prison once. If he needs to, he could do it again. And after all, Steve Rogers was the one who infiltrated the raft to free his friends. Odds are, Bucky and Sam could pull off the same thing. John Walker slash U.S. agent could well play into the new film as he's forging his own identity as U.S. agent. Now, I think there's still lots of mileage they can get out of a character who's basically a dark opposite of Sam. And since Cap 4 is still in the development stage, that means that there's probably at least a whole phase of MCU that will come and go before this comes out. Black Widow, which is set in the past, and Secret Invasion seem pretty likely just based on the fact that characters like Widow and Nick Fury have direct ties to the Captain America family. I got my eye on you. Seeing these characters on the big screen again is pretty exciting to think about. So we're hoping Cap 4 is just like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, only bigger and explodier. Not a ton of Easter eggs in this week's episode, but here's what we got. Sam's Captain America wingsuit is a pretty obvious one. The MCU version of this suit keeps pretty close to its comics inspiration, first appearing in Captain America comics in 2014. And speaking of suits, U.S. Agent's new gear is basically a black skin of his old gear, but now he's looking a lot closer to his comics counterpart. You know, I wonder if Val is going to get him a new shield. Don't call me that. Now, when Sharon appears on the scene in New York, she uses Black Widow's cool face changer gadget from Captain America the Winter Soldier. Now, wouldn't it 
be kind of weird if this Sharon was a scroll underneath. I mean, using a face changer to mask a face that can change into anything? Or was this just the confirmation that Sharon isn't a scroll? You don't think I ever fought for something bigger than myself? That's all I ever tried to do, and I fell twice. Now, when Bucky is having a phone combo with Carly Morgenthau, he mentions falling, which is how the Winter Soldier was born. <laughs> Speaking of Bucky, let's hear it for Captain America. He was the one who announced Steve Rogers as Captain America back in the day, and he does it again with Sam. Nice job, Cap. Thanks. But what do you think of Falcon and the Winter Soldier's finale? And what did you think of Sam as Captain America? And what's next for the power broker slash Sharon? And what do you think Cap 4 will be all about? Let's throw around some theories in the comment section down below. Anyway, thank you all so, so much for watching this episode of Cannon Fodder. And for more on Marvel, check out the incredible MCU that time forgot. But don't you forget to follow and subscribe to IGN wherever you like to watch. Sharon, Bucky, what's going on on your end? Nothing, all quiet. I'm sorry, wait, who are you? Captain America. I thought Captain America was on the moon. In your car. At work. At home. On your smartphone. The Beautiful Game, the game that for over a hundred years has been adored by people young and old all over England. Whether people crowd round the pitches at lower league games or in the parks or fill Wembley Stadium for cup finals, football is something that brings people together. But at 11.15pm on Sunday the 18th of April, news broke that looked like it could change football forever. Well, we've got some breaking news uh, regarding our top story this evening. Uh, we've been reporting all afternoon uh, proposals to form a new Super League competition in Europe. Well, the organisers of that competition have released a statement in the last few moments. Uh, they say that they have come together to announce they have agreed to establish a new midweek competition, the Super League. I'm still in shock. I just can't believe that uh, something like this is going to go ahead. I think the way this has all been done is disgraceful. I think the fact that there are overseas owners determining the future of our games without any sort of fans' consultation is, is very dangerous. And I think there's a really big feeling of embarrassment. For what happens to the, the memories of what the, the fans have had over the years, they're just forgotten about for the sake of money. Yeah, I am wholeheartedly against it and I'm just really disappointed that my club seems to be at the heart of this. Because it's basically just nobody outside of the top teams will be able to even compete. I think, to be honest, it's the final straw and a lot of people are, are really, really fed up with people that have no involvement or knowledge of football running the game. The idea is brilliant. I think it's a league where anything could happen. At the end of the day, what difference does it make? The majority of people up and down the country watch football in their armchairs anyway, so why does it matter if they're watching AC Milan against Liverpool or Liverpool against Aston Villa? It doesn't to a lot of people. Then, under 48 hours later, teams began to pull out of the Super League. Key figures began resigning, and it became one of the most dramatic nights in football off the pitch. 
We're getting unconfirmed reports at this moment that Chelsea are pulling out of the Super League. Is on the verge of collapse. Chelsea and Manchester City set to pull Liverpool out of the competition. Say this. Liverpool Football Club can confirm that our involvement in proposed plans to form a European Super League has been discontinued. Seconds later, Manchester United, club statement. Manchester United will not be participating in the European Super League. Seconds later, Spurs... We can confirm that we have formally commenced procedures to withdraw from the group developing proposals for Euro- uh, European Super League. And then again, within seconds, we heard from Arsenal. As a result of listening to you and the wider football community over recent days, we are withdrawing from the proposed Super League. We made a mistake and we apologise for it. Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan. From the moment it was announced, it's caused heated debates. To look at it from the perspective of the players and the fans and understand the scale of the money behind it, we spoke to Shanila Admed. I became the first Asian female football agent back in 2014. And Alex Brower. I'm the city editor of the Daily Mail, and I also write economic commentary as well. Uh, you know, what, what do you enjoy most? Uh, do you support a team in the Premier League, uh, Champions League? I, I do support a team in the Premier League. I've been a Chelsea season to get hold of for nearly 30 years. Shanila, you've got a team you follow, or, or dare you do that? Would it alienate some of your clients? Well, I do follow. I'm a proud United Manchester United supporter. Okay, and uh, so clearly that goes goes for the Champions League as well. Now, uh, where were you both, Shanila? Where were you uh, late on Sunday night when this news came through? I think I had just finished watching, I think it was either La Liga I was doing or it was the Inter Milan game I was doing and the bulletin was just sort of flashing on my phone. (laughs) It was like, what's going on? You really are dedicated. I thought you were going to say you've just been watching Line of Duty. Um, Alex, what about... Oh, no, no, that's recorded. <laughs> Alex, what about you? How did you well, hear, I was, hear the I, news? I was, you, you got me down to, to a T. I was watching Line of Duty and scrolling, and, you know, and in the casual way that one does, I was kind of scrolling up and down on the phone just seeing what was going on. Picked it up then a bit. Well, how did you feel on hearing the news that a Super League had been created? Well, I thought it was an important milestone in the sense that it raised the possibility that um, these other closed systems and the Premier League, FIFA and UEFA could be um, discarded in favour of something different. So I think it's it's shown a way of opening up the system a bit in a different kind of way. Shanila, you didn't think the ESL was such a positive thing, did you? It wasn't positive because nobody was ever consulted about it. All these meetings were taking place behind closed doors. The managers weren't aware of it. Neither were the supporters. And for it to have worked, you've got to remember you have fans to consider. Football is nothing without the fans and the supporters. You've, we've all realised this in this pandemic, what we've all gone through. All the managers are crying out, hopefully, for the fans to be back at the uh, grounds. Of course it wasn't going to work because football is all about competition. 
teams being relegated, teams being promoted, teams entering into the competitions. So, of course, everybody feels betrayed. The managers, everybody. But it was what it was. And it was totally bizarre as to how they all went about it. Because everybody was oblivious as to what these owners were trying to do behind closed doors. So I think that was the biggest shock to everybody, really. And yes, as far as the players are concerned, we couldn't give them any answers because we didn't have any answers ourselves. And they couldn't even go to their managers because their managers didn't know what was happening either. So who did they turn to? So everybody just united. It worked, yeah. <laughs> as far as the agents were concerned, when all this was announced, it was just a shock. Because you have to remember, say for example, the Super League did go ahead. Thank God it didn't. What happened to the contracts? What clauses were going to be put in for your players? And then you would have to balance out what the UEFA and the FA, if they were going to put sanctions on your players. Not just that, then you're looking at their commercial deals for players their sponsorship deals and their wages and their bonuses. It would have been a mess. Well, after the news, the word that was thrown around a lot has been, of course, greed. The six clubs in England have sought out a way to make a huge amount of money. How do you feel about that? Well, I think the use of the word greed has always been associated with these very big clubs. And I think the Premier League is a very has been a very greedy organisation. So I don't think this is much more greedy than the previous organisation. So, I mean, you know, these are capitalists. And what capitalists do is profit maximisation. The fact that they're dealing with football and real people and a strong fan base does kind of change the the mix a bit but we shouldn't think that um they're in it any of these people are really in it for the love i i suspect though that um roman abramovich um who was the first of the um football billionaires um the russian billionaire who owns chelsea to crack was very much influenced by the the fan reaction the club reaction and um that's you know a credit to him so he kind of got it quite quickly Shanila, one of the things they promised that the ESL would bring more would be more entertaining football. Do you really think it's going to suffer now that it's remaining in the the current league system? As far as entertainment is concerned, fans like to see different teams in different competitions. It was all about money, what um, commercial deals they were going to get out of it. But it wasn't a fair system. So on the entertainment side, you have to remember the Champions League has been around for so many years. People and the fans thrive on that because it's like the lower clubs can get into the Champions League. But as far as the entertainment side is concerned, what entertainment was the Super League going to bring? So after this whole thing collapsed earlier this week, I watched a game on television, um, Chelsea versus Brighton Hove Albion. It was the most boring thing I've ever seen. Earlier on, um, in, in recent days, I've seen Chelsea play Porto. I've seen Chelsea play Atletico Madrid. These were great games, much more interesting, much more combative, much more tactical than this other game. So I actually think that more international football, 
clubs playing each other more more frequently and broadening the base of the Champions League or something like on a different, perhaps a different footing to the European Super League would actually increase the attractiveness. It would make, there would be more exciting and better games. I think that international aspect would really help. And the Super League was going to give us more of it. So I think, you know, we have to come up with a way perhaps of finding some, some method of allowing that to happen to see more of that stuff. Coming up, the ESL may have only lasted 48 hours, but has football been changed forever? I'm Martha Kellner. I'm the sport correspondent for Sky News, covering sports news and investigations um, on TV and on digital platforms and, of course, on the Sky News Daily podcast. It was sort of Sunday afternoon that the news first started to filter through. There was a story in the New York Times and the Times that this Super League was about to be announced. And it's obviously been spoken about for a long time. And the notification popped up on my phone and I was actually out bridesmaid dress shopping with my sister. You know, we'd managed to find a nice little pavement cafe um, in York, we had a Bellini or two, and then all of a sudden you're thrown as in. As you do. As you do, exactly. When you manage to secure a pavement cafe at the moment, it's definitely what you do. But, you know, th- this news pops through and you think, is this really it? This Super League that's been spoken about for so many years now, is it actually going to, to happen? These six big English clubs involved, United, Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur and obviously for the last sort of couple of decades they've been considered the big six but as you know Dermot that doesn't always correlate with the the results that we see at the moment that idea of the big six is is mainly based on financial might and the power that they wield within the the Premier League it doesn't necessarily mean that they're consistently the six best performers in the league. Yeah, that's really well put. Uh, as an Arsenal fan, you're speaking very uh, personally to, to to me there. But it's, it, I mean, a lot of it's about their international brands, isn't it? And uh, and this is what the Super League is partially about, isn't it? It's not the fans domestically in England. It's about all those millions upon millions of fans who don't come to the games, but who would pay lots of money to subscribe to watch them. Yeah, I think that was a lot of what the Super League was about. It was about money and marketability. And that's why these six clubs were involved and not, say, you know, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa. They just don't have that international appeal, particularly in the sort of Asia, Africa markets. One of the really striking things about all this was that they were talking behind the scenes that these owners of the the Super League clubs about fans in very different terms. They were talking about fans who go to matches as being legacy fans, whereas fans who they look to, who maybe consume football on their phones, on YouTube clips, that sort of thing, they were referring to them as future fans. In terms of what those owners believe, they very much believe that the future fans are more important for their economic model than the legacy fans. For many of these clubs, legacy fans, as they're now calling them, matchgoers, only contribute, you know, 15, 20% of their entire revenue streams. Whereas the future fans, they're the ones, you know, they're the ones who they really see as their their future revenue stream. And what really got the legacy fans goat was um, the structure, the proposed, and I suppose the 
the way it was going to operate this league, I mean, we're just totally unused to it. It's an American model. It's it's a closed shop. However badly you do, you can't get thrown out. I, I think that's what the, the big six were looking for. They were looking to remove any sense of jeopardy to ensure that they always have a seat at the table in European competition. And as you mentioned, that's very much an American idea, this idea of closed shop leagues. It works in the NFL, um, it works in Major League Soccer, and they wanted to bring that to association football. And that idea just did not sit well with fans, with players, with pundits, even with some executives within those clubs. It didn't sit well, this idea of it not being a meritocracy. But it is the Americans within this whole Super League scheme who have been driving it. Of course, we had Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, who's long agitated um, for a European breakaway league, which puts more money and power in the hands of those elite clubs. But the reason this particular this particular iteration of a European Super League was successful is it, that it had the backing of these billionaire American owners, John W. Henry uh, at Liverpool, the Glazer family at Manchester United, um, and also Stan Kroenke at Arsenal. They very much believed that they could execute this sort of closed league that they're used to in, in their home countries here in England and across Europe. And I think it quickly became apparent that the fans were just not going to stand for that. So, as you say, it's been around for a while. Part of it is about this dispute, the friction that's been there for ages between the big clubs and the governing authorities in England, between the FA, then we get to UEFA at the European level and and FIFA. And it must be said that um, some of those organisations, certainly FIFA, I mean, are hardly paragons of virtue, given what we've been reporting on over the years about brown envelopes and backdoor deals. Exactly. I think the the extraordinary thing about this is that UEFA and FIFA have emerged looking like paragons of virtue, like they're protecting the people's game, when in actual fact, you know, fans are not necessarily at the absolute forefront of their thoughts either. And I think they really have been sort of the PR winners of this whole battle. And you've got UEFA at the moment trying to, to force through their own reforms to the Champions League, which are not, you know, hugely dissimilar from the Super League, but they have they have managed to emerge victors from this. You had that extraordinary press conference by the UEFA president, Alexander Sheffrin. Teams will always qualify and compete in our competitions on merit, not a closed shop run by a greedy select few. UEFA has emerged from this not only with an enhanced reputation from a public relations point of view, but also an enhanced reputation in negotiations with these, you know, 12 super elite European clubs because the threat of a super league for the moment has been taken off the table. Certainly a super league in actuality has been taken off the table, but also that threat that they wield in negotiations, even, you know, if it's unmentioned, it's always there, the idea that you have to keep these clubs happy because otherwise they may may break away. That's now disappeared. And talking about PR victories um, in the UK, I mean, a huge victory, of course, for the government. They should have a link uh, with those fans and, uh, were, and, and with the fan base in those, uh, in those communities. So it is very, very important uh, that that continues uh, to be the case. Uh, I don't like the look of these, uh, of these proposals and we'll be consulting about what we can do. 
are they going to follow through? Because they're making all the noises now about this fan-led model. Are they really going to legislate to force these multi-million pound and multi-million dollar corporations to put fans on the board with real power, the so-called German model? I think there's definitely pressure like there hasn't been before on the government to make this a watershed moment. We've not seen fans united in in shared outrage over something quite like this before. You know, you usually get fans, they will, to an extent, back their own club, their own owners. But, you know, we've, we've seen, we saw Chelsea fans taking to the streets outside Stamford Bridge, stopping traffic. Leeds United fans organising a flyover plane. We had Manchester United fans holding bedsheets up, you know, in anger, you know, with with slogans urging their owners, um, who are obviously hugely unpopular, to do the right thing. And I think there is pressure now on government to use this momentum to really change what what some issues in the game that have not just started with this Super League. You know, they started a lot of these issues with the advent of the, of the Premier League in 1992. So, you know, the idea of having greedy owners who don't have the best interests at their, of their club at heart is not a new thing. But I think there is now impetus on the government to exact some real change. And there's a number of things um, that are happening. There's this fan-led review, which is being chaired by the the former sports minister, the Conservative MP, Tracy Crouch. Now, she is a a huge football fan, a huge fan of of sport, and I know is a a big proponent of fan-owned football clubs as well. So she does believe in that fan power. So I've I've no doubt or, or I hope and believe that that fan-led review will be taken seriously and it will result in some sort of substantive change that affects the amount of power these billionaire owners wield. Um, Mm. There's also Helen Grant, another former sports minister. She's calling for the independent regulation of football backed by statutory powers. She was part of this manifesto for change alongside Gary Neville, David Davis, a former executive director of the FA, and others who were calling for, uh, you know, there to be more I guess more more legislation in place so that it's not just empty promises that there can actually be laws enacted to to stop owners doing things like the European Super League but it's to do what because the fans are conflicted I mean you know the fans don't actually want jumpers for goalpost football in the Premier League anymore we've seen that for years I mean I didn't notice Chelsea fans demonstrating 15 odd years ago when Roman Abramovich, the the billionaire who's made his money uh, in uh, post-Soviet Russia. I didn't see them demonstrating when he bought in the superstar players and helped them win the Champions League. I didn't see Manchester City fans demonstrating when the Qataris got involved and got them out of the shadow of Manchester United. And that fan-based model also applies in Spain, it should be said. And what we see there from the fans is every year they want a superstar player bought in. They want hundreds of millions spent on players. So, you know, do do we really expect this model to come into the UK? The owners who are obviously going to have to front up the money for these players and their wages, do we really expect them to do that and not make any money out of it? I think it's an interesting question. I think there'd have to be a complete reset, wouldn't there? The German model obviously has this 50 plus one ownership, um, which means that, that the fans are the majority shareholders in the club. They have people on the executive board um, so that they have a say in what happens at their club. And it certainly works well at Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich, which when you go there, they do have a, a different atmosphere to going to watch 
Premier League games, there is almost more of a sense of an investment in the club and the community um, as opposed to just these sort of conglomerate, you know, these sort of faceless football clubs where you don't know who the owner is you never see from you never hear from them you just see see the checks as you say rolling to buy those players it would require a, a complete reset fans are conflicted there's no doubt about it you know we rail you know as a fan of a premier league club you know we sit there and we rail don't we at some um, the underperforming players who are paid 200,000 300,000 pounds yeah. a week but then we also rail at the owners and i remember sitting in the stand shouting at myself spend some <clears throat> uh, rude word money um <laughs> you know whenever you whenever you see and you know i said i'm an arsenal fan whenever you saw one of the cronkies there that was the chant from the fans spend some effing money yeah. um and that's what we want. It's not that we don't want them involved. And if you won't do it, you want another billionaire involved who who will spend the money on the club. Because, you know, you don't see that at Chelsea. You don't see that at Manchester City. And as I say, the fans are conflicted. You know, if you want to see jumpers for goalposts football, you can see that every day of the week. Well, obviously, lockdowns... Um, when they're gone uh, in, in your local park and I do that as well so mm-hmm. you know the idea that we're going to go to a I don't know John Lewis model I'm somehow thinking that um, you know the long grass beckons perhaps for this government review but um, that's just me <laughs> do you think that I mean do you think Martha just let, I know you, your time's limited that this is going to come back and if they actually had got a promotion and relegation element into this super league it would work because, you know, I mean, when you watch the Champions League, and remember, this wasn't to replace the Premier League. When you watch the Champions League, um, there are some games you think, oh, my God, I don't want to watch that. that you know, that that under, under team from Romania, you mm. know, they're pretty rubbish. I want to see the big clubs play. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I, I you can go into the, the pub when you you know you've got a, a you know a top european side and as you say they're playing some some minnows from you know eastern europe and they they're not exciting games people are not there people turn up when liverpool are playing real madrid i you know i think it's almost been it's been in the train for a really long time and i think uefa have sort of used this this super league fiasco to sneak through their their sort of this Swiss system um, that they're enacting this sort of single 36-team group where instead of playing three group opponent uh, opponents home and away across six match days, teams are going to play 10 different opponents of varying strength. And that will see the number of European games increase from 125 to 225. But you're still going to get this massive inequality between the you know the haves and the have-nots, so the system that UEFA are proposing to bring in that they're looking to to sneak through amid all this chaos is not going to stop that. I asked Shanila and Alex what they thought now that this proposal had been floated, albeit a failure. Did they think an elite league will go ahead at some point in the future? Who knows? Things change, but it's all about. If you have a proposal, if you're trying to take things forward, you sit down, you talk, you sit down around a table, you take everybody's views, the manager's views, you take the views of the players, the agents, 
and these associations, the football associations, the UEFA, you don't do things behind closed doors. And football has always been competitive, and that's what the supporters love about this. So we'll just have to wait and see, but I don't think anybody will try and do what happened in the last few days. I think we've seen the future, had a a very small glimpse of of it. The amount of money in the game, um, particularly television rights, and the the highest television rights are obtained for um, Champions League and European games of that kind, will tempt people into coming up with some new proposals. Um, May not look the same as this one which came up, may have been too closed, they may have to inject some more competition into the model. But I think um, they're onto something. And if you think it's gone away, you're mistaken. It's going to come back. My thanks to Martha Kellner, Alex Brummer and Shanila Admed. You can keep up to date with this story on our website and app. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Manahan, produced by Nicola Ayres and our interviews producer, Tatiana Alderson. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. Thank you for listening to today's episode. York City District Attorney's Office is one step closer to decriminalizing prostitution. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance announced Wednesday his office will no longer prosecute prostitution or what it calls unlicensed massage cases. Prosecutors will keep going after people who solicit sex workers or commit crimes related to sex trafficking. The DA's office also plans to drop nearly 6,000 related cases dating back to the 1970s. Another district attorney's office in Queens plans to follow suit. Vance likely has some support from the public. A 2019 Data for Progress poll shows more than half of voters support decriminalizing sex work. With me now for more is Kimberly Melman Orozco. Kimberly is a human trafficking expert witness, and she is also the author of Hidden in Plain Sight, America's Slaves of the New Millennium. So, Kimberly, in practical terms, what does decriminalizing prostitution mean? So I think most people might think of it as a step towards legalization, but it is very different. Legalization means that it's it's legal, it's permissible, it's okay to do. Decriminalization, on the other hand, essentially means they're choosing, it's still illegal, but they're choosing not to prosecute it. 
they are going to use more discretion in, in when and under what circumstances they choose to investigate it. And so essentially this step towards legal, uh, towards decriminalization means that it will still be illegal, but it's not going to be necessarily a prosecutorial uh, offense where they're going to pursue prosecution. I want to dig a little bit deeper into decriminalization versus legalization. Is one better for sex workers? Is one safer? And and, um, and why are why is New York City going to the route of decriminalization rather than legalization? I think that's an excellent question. There is some research that actually does suggest that when you legalize sex work, you do see an uptick in sex trafficking cases. There's this idea that if you legalize it, it's going to replace the illicit market. But in in fact, we've seen an expansion where places have legalized it and these sex trafficking cases have continued to to continue under the veneer of being a, a illicit exchange. Decriminalization, on the other hand, it is, I think, a step in the right direction. It's supported by Amnesty International, and it essentially is allowing for um, consenting adult sex work to continue um, without prosecution, but it's empowering these women who are engaging in sex work to come forward when and if they're being victimized. So if a sex worker is violently victimized or even sex trafficked, she's not necessarily going to report it if it's illegal because she's going to fear criminalization. And we actually have seen many victims of trafficking being criminalized, being arrested, being prosecuted for things like prostitution. And that's why over 50% of states have vacator statutes. So by decriminalizing it, it's empowering these women to come forward when and if they are violently victimized or victimized in any way without fear of prosecution. And I think that that doesn't have that same expansion effect as legalization. So I think it is in a, a step in the right direction. Uh, you, you mentioned sex trafficking, and not all people working in the sex industry um, are there voluntarily. So how is decriminalizing prostitution linked to the fight against sex trafficking? So I think that most people, when they think of sex trafficking, they're thinking of something out of the movie Taken, where you have a clearly innocent victim and you have these gun-wielding mobsters that's, that are physically kidnapping her, but that's not how it happens in real life. In real life, it's much more clandestine, and it's difficult to identify. It's difficult to identify somebody who's sex trafficked from somebody who is consenting because of the mental manipulation, the trauma bonding, the coercion, the deceptions that's involved with that exploitation. And so I think some of the challenges with decriminalization in particular, for example, in the illicit massage industry, it's it's about identifying who is there, you know, by their own will, by their own volition and, and agency and who's being exploited. And so with regards to the prevalence of sex trafficked persons within the commercial sex industry, it's very hidden. There aren't very a lot of reliable data on that. But I would say the majority of sex workers are not being trafficked from the research that I've seen. They are not being trafficked. They are consenting persons. But those who are being trafficked, again, they're very it's very difficult to discern who's consenting from who's not without some form of investigation. So I think one of the challenges of decriminalization is, you know, when and under what circumstances do you investigate, do you explore further if this person is truly consenting or not? Hmm. Sex workers often do not report abuse that they face while working or during arrests. Walk us through some of the dangers that sex workers face and tell us how the justice system uh, has further enforced this problem. Sex workers are at high risk of all types of victimization from rape and sexual assault 
to robbery, to physical abuse. And because of the nature of the industry, of it being illicit, they are sometimes afraid to report those victimizations to law enforcement. These women are also at high risk of being trafficked. Um, uh, traffic, uh, traffickers, essentially, they try to exploit whatever void an individual has in their life. So with regards to sex trafficked persons, or excuse me, consenting sex workers, they're saying, well, I'll provide you protection. I will help you and protect you from other forms of abuse, for example, from uh, commercial sex consumers. So I, I think by empowering them, by decriminalizing uh, them in a way that empowers them to come forward and report these victimizations to law enforcement, I think you are actually kind of undermining some of the tools that traffickers use to lure them into exploitable situations. District Attorney Cy Vance also noted that people of color and the LGBTQ community are disproportionately impacted by the policing of sex workers. What causes this discrepancy? It is something that has been endemic in the commercial sex industry for a very long time. Even the origins of sex trafficking, it was born out of this idea of, quote unquote, white slavery. The first anti-sex trafficking laws that we saw were called white slavery laws, where white women were predominantly viewed as victims, while women of color were viewed as criminals and treated as such. So I think that by decriminalizing it, I think it's it's helping protect further protect marginalized communities. But we still see that to this day with who's considered a victim, who is considered an offender with the criminalization of these laws um, with regards to persons of color, but also other marginalized communities like LGBTQ populations. They're at high risk of, of being victimized in a number of different ways um, and engaging sometimes in, in, in survival sex and other ways to make ends meet. So I think with regards to the racialization um, and the disproportionate policing, I think you're you're by decriminalizing it, you're putting um, these populations on more of an even playing field um, with with others who are treated as either victims or treated as consenting participants that are that have the agency to make these choices. Kimberly, you uh, you said earlier in this interview that legalization in your research uh, tends to lead to increased consumption, increased sex trafficking. What will what will decriminalization? What will be the effects, I guess, of decriminalization in New York City of prostitution and sex working? I think that remains to be seen. It depends on how they're going to be implementing this idea of decriminalization and when and under what circumstances they're going to further inquire into the 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 consenting nature nature of a commercial sex exchange. So I think for one, it likely will empower women who are engaged in commercial sex to come forward with other forms of more serious abuse, violence, and victimization that they experience, reporting that and getting those dangerous persons um, uh, in the criminal justice system and hopefully um, convicted of the crimes that they've been committing. Um, but as far as what what impact it will have for sex trafficked persons, I think there will be a veneer of legitimacy. And I think you might see an uptick until they figure out how to discern a consenting participant, somebody who is an adult, who is making the agency, who has the agency and making the choice to engage in the commercial sex exchange with another adult from somebody who's potentially a minor or who is being forced, defrauded, coerced, or deceived into an exploitable position. When we're, with regards to sex trafficking, we need to remember it really is a modern form of slavery, but it's involving coercion, deception, and things that are much more difficult to discern from simply looking at somebody or asking them 
are you being victimized? Are you being exploited? Many times victims of trafficking don't even perceive themselves as an exploited person, as a victim, until they better understand what's going on and more holistically understand how they're being exploited. So I think that the district attorney is going to face a number of challenges to protect victimized persons who are sex trafficked and discern them from consenting adult sex workers. Um, but I think it, you know, it's going to be a long road ahead. Really, I think that's such an important point, because even in having this conversation, it's a bit difficult um, because there are very big differences between uh, those those groups that are being exploited and ones who are doing so voluntarily. Kimberly Melman Orozco, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Hi everyone, it's Winnie from Asian Boss. Did you know that Japan is actually a very popular destination for international students? And in fact, there are over 300,000 international students in Japan. So, why did they come to Japan and what is it like studying abroad in Japan in 2021? Let's hit the streets of Tokyo to find out. Just to start off, where are you from and what are you studying right now? Hi, um, I'm from Vietnam and I'm studying environmental sciences. Well, I've been in Japan since 2012 for the bachelor and then I did my master's and now I'm doing my PhD. I'm from Mongolia and I'm a master's student at Tokyo Institute of Technology and I'm studying the interfacial uh, interaction between the protein and the biomaterials. I'm originally from Bangladesh and uh, now I'm studying engineering at the University of Tokyo. I'm in my uh, doctoral study. I'm from America, and right now I'm at the University of Tokyo. I'm a first year's master's student, and I'm in the graduate program of environmental science. I'm from Alaska, USA. I'm getting my master's from United Nations University. It's just up there. I'm focusing on resiliency and climate change, and I live in Alaska, so we have a lot of climate change happening, and it's really crazy. I'm from Kyrgyzstan, and I'm a research student at Tokyo University. Was it difficult to kind of, you know, apply for schools or programs in Japan? Yeah, I think it was very difficult because um, the programs like um, here are very competitive. They only selected two people from the whole country every year. So that was very hard. Why did you decide to come and study in Japan? Um, first of all, the higher education standard is really good in here and also the research facility, research target. While I was young, I always heard about Japan, about the technology and the nice people and also the environment here. So I kind of had a wish to go to Japan, not for study, at least for travel or something. But later uh, when I grew up and I learned more about the Japanese technology and their specialization in the engineering, also the energy sector, then I saw there are some good uh, topics here, taught here, and also the ranking of the university is quite good. What were some of the expectations that you had before you come, and were they is Japan um, meeting the, those expectations, or is it kind of different? In Russia, we have this, uh, you know, a lot of uh, image about Japan that it's like. Uh, country of the future and robots everywhere and <laughs> but reality was actually different. Maybe something that surprised me a lot is that Tokyo is quite an old city. <laughs> old city? 
Yeah, because yeah, I expect it to be more like very, you know, very futuristic. Definitely the city has a lot of history and it has a lot of like very, very old buildings. Before I came to Japan, I thought that many Japanese people can speak English. So I prepared myself like to speak English to get, you know, to get notes to know each other, like to know about like the people here. But I came here and it was like there's not many people can speak uh, English. So it was difficult for me. What is your Japanese level right now? Do you think it's necessary for people to speak Japanese in order to study here? Not if your program is in English. So and my 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 level I don't know, I never took a JLBT. It used to be a lot better, but my master's program is all in English. So I passed the JLPT and one uh, two years ago. So that's the highest level? Uh, yeah, it's the highest level, but you know, it's never enough. You always uh, need to study to improve your level. If you want to stay here for a longer time, if you want to get a job, definitely the Japanese language skills will give you a heads up. I'm here on mainly for the study, and my program is also an international program. So you can survive even with no Japanese at all. But I recommend like to have a minimal conversation level Japanese so that you can also blend into the society, you know? What are the common like stereotypes or myths um, for international students in Japan? Maybe everyone is like super into anime or something like that. But not everyone. Ooh, I've heard a few. I've heard that international students as neighbors, if you live in an apartment, are really loud compared, <laughs> compared to uh, Japanese people. I, I think if you were uh, a different race, though, it, it would it would be more difficult because uh, I know that there's some restaurants sometimes, and like customer service will be like, "Oh, they're gaijin, don't don't serve them," and I think that's not okay. Why do you think they they would reject foreigners to to go into a restaurant? I'm honestly not too sure. Maybe it has something to do with like. They see foreigners, whether they're working or international students like myself, as invading Japan and as a way that's taking away the culture that's been established here for you know, centuries. Most some students come from the Europe or the North America. They are kind of like exchange students, yeah. so they come here for six months or for a short time period but they get their original degree from their own university. And uh, some other students, they come from the third world countries or the Asian countries. So most of them, they have a uh, plan to stay here or work here for a longer time. So the Japanese people, they might have different attitudes towards them. If you come from the Asian or the South Asian countries, they might think oh, they may not be qualified enough or uh, they may not uh, know our culture or they may not respect, even respect our culture. But uh, when people get used to these things, uh, they know, like the students, they also try to adapt to the culture and the society. If you say that you're from, for example, you're an international student and you're from Todai, Kei, or Waseda, or Kyodai, they look at you like as you're a genius, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, and you get a special treatment. Like on the day when I arrived to Japan, when uh, I just stopped the lady to helped me to find the way and she learned that I'm from Todai and she, she just took me to the place like and bought me the ticket and I'm like whoa like, <laughs> people are like telling you things like oh thank you for coming to our country like thank you for being here like they're so grateful what are the biggest differences between college back home and college in Japan uh, Japanese education would encourage kind of more self-sufficient in uh -huh. terms of note-taking reading 
building uh, their own thinking uh-huh. and or like and individual apply. studying and all individual yeah. studying in the US it's more of a conversation but in Japan it seems like we're there to listen and i sometimes even felt if i asked a question it's like the professor if they're really japanese like they didn't study abroad or something so they're not used to that they'll even like be offended maybe like oh i wasn't expecting a question or something and they'll like talk around the question it's such a lost opportunity to not hear from the japanese students because they're crazy smart like these people got into todai they're like super smart but they're not as like talkative i don't know i just feel like it's such a shame because i want to know what they have to say so something that really surprised me when i was taking classes for my first semester here was the amount of classes taken in a typical japanese semester so in the us you usually take 3 to 4 classes at one time and they're multiple times a week so you get reinforcement from each lesson but in japan it was like you have one class and it's only once a week but you're taking 12 of them at a time in one semester so that was kind of that was a bit jarring <laughs> and a, a pretty big adjustment cuz i felt like i wasn't absorbing the information as well since i wasn't getting it multiple times a week uh but actually by the end of the semester i got used to it and it was totally fine comparing to russia your schedule is really free and you can uh make up it by yourself so you can choose uh, classes what you want to study classes you want to take and uh, it's uh, really up to you so you can wake up in the morning enjoy your like routines and go to classes and then have your part-time job uh, come back uh, to your dorm and spend time with your friends so it's everything up to you what do you think are the biggest benefits studying in japan I think it's so cool that you can have a part-time job with your student visa. The minimum wage, like I worked at a cafe and I still made enough like I could I could fly to like Okinawa. I could do what I want. It's you could work at a convenience store and make like a fine amount of money. You could easily support yourself if you could pay for your own program and I think that's really really cool. And you have the health insurance that's so I'm from America like I'm also lucky to have health insurance but that's insane the health care system here is so nice so the japanese education system i think it's like a very well organized so you get a certain amount of uh, qualification like if you go to a certain place and you uh, get enrolled in a well uh, a good ranked university then you have very good potential to get employed to better places and it opens the opportunities So on the flip side, what are some of the downside or um challenges studying in Japan as an international student? Um I think it has many uh competition. It's really, you know, there's the many students here, so you really need to push yourself hard. Communicating is is could be difficult, right? Because sometimes uh I could only speak for my own supervisor. He is not very he doesn't want to say directly like what exactly he wants me to do. Japan I think is a place where people don't say things explicitly and as a group you're supposed to yeah. understand. And then corona when people don't meet directly it gets a little bit difficult. I didn't have like friends or family here so I really had to build everything like from scratch. I I'm coming from a country where people are more sociable than here. So at the beginning it was like, oh, 
why so many people are just introverted, like, you know, and not, like, willing to talk. Especially in Tokyo University, oh, yeah. people are just nerdy. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of articles that mention about the, um, the suicide uh, rates in Japan. It's quite, like, high in the world. And there's a lot of people, like, you know, sometimes I go on the street and I see a lot of people, they feel, like, really lonely. And so I, it also, like, affects myself a little bit. Like, I feel, like, really sad. But, you know, like, if you try to let things off and then, like, you just try to be positive. By nature, the Japanese people are a bit closed, you know? So they want to keep within themselves. So, yeah, they are now opening up. So when you come to Japan, uh, you don't expect everything like everywhere else. So people normally, they don't come to you and ask you questions. But when you make friends with them, then you see that, oh, they are not different from others, you know? But you have to try to break to the break shackle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you discover the inner beauty of the Japanese people, that is really great. By the way, how has COVID affected your study in Japan? Um, I haven't been back to my campus for a year. <laughs> you can easily be isolated in Japan. And with COVID, you're for sure isolated. So, yeah, I think COVID has a really... It's hard on mental health. Uh, before we go to school and then we meet our friends and then, you know, we just join the classes together. But when COVID like occurred in Japan, then we need to study at home. Did you have any friends around you who have to leave Japan due to the pandemic situation? Yes, I have a lot of, uh, especially my Vietnamese friends. Uh, so last year, they came back to, to my home country to celebrate the New Year in Vietnam. But because of COVID, then there's no flights back to Japan. So they have to stay in Vietnam until now it's like one year. And then they just don't know when they will come back. I think it's, it's really like unfortunate for them. I have a friend who is actually supposed to come the same time as me in January. But she, she's in China right now, and she's still not here. She can't get in still. So I don't know what the situation is for all international students, but I know at least for her, she's been trying to get in, and she hasn't been allowed. And it's been a whole semester, you know, which is a quarter of our program. So uh, I don't How do you know. feel about that? It's frustrating, especially if you're a master's student or doctorate student, any type of research student. Like... Right. It's just going to stall the amount of time, like stall your progress essentially because your research is based on doing things in the lab with specimen usually. And so if you can't be in the lab, then you're just kind of wasting your time. I also personally know like some students who struggled with, uh, like they went back home due, like before pandemic and they were about to come during like the lockdown, but they couldn't and they had the rent here and you know, they cannot cancel the contract, yeah. so they lost a lot of money because they couldn't cancel their rent. And they also didn't receive any scholarship on that period. So I think there was uh, some of my friends even were writing the petition against it. Because of new strict rules and uh, tests uh, and uh, closed borders, I don't know when I can see my family again. So I think it's the hardest uh, one. I can go to Russia, but the problem is that I can't come back to Japan. This is uh, the most challenging thing. Yeah, so what do you feel about that kind of policy or decision of the government? Um, I don't feel that it's the uh, right thing because I know that uh, Japanese who are going to, like, you know, business trips, yeah. they're coming back to yeah. Japan. And uh, so the possibility of getting COVID is the same. Yeah. Why 
can't new uh, foreign students, especially if you know that they have uh, like uh, uh, COVID tests and they don't have COVID, why don't they come to Japan? Would you consider working in Japan after graduation? Why and why not? Maybe for a short term, some postgrad uh, opportunities, I will definitely give it a try. But uh, in the long term, I will also look for other opportunities all over the world and also back in my country, <laughs> if it is possible. So yeah, Japan is a nice place to stay and work, but uh, this is not my last destination. I've been in Japan for nine years, so it's quite natural that I will be working in Japan because the connections, the people I know, the network, the way of doing things, right. uh, those things I kind of understand. I'm thinking about that. I am planning to do my uh, PhD here. Do you think it's difficult for international students to find jobs in Japan? I know a lot of international students who work here, so I don't think that's like the the barrier is not for the international school student or like Japanese student. The barrier might be like language. Do you know like Japanese very well or not? Yes, I am. Now I'm preparing for my job hunting in Japan. Why would you want to find a job in Japan? Well, I want to become like a connection between Vietnam and Japan because recently um, the two countries have a really good relationship and there are a lot of Vietnamese people living in Japan and also Japanese people living in Vietnam. So in the future, I want to become like um, a bridge to kind of like enhance the relationship between the two countries. If you have one advice for people who are interested in coming to study in Japan, what would that be? The number one thing would be if you're into anime or manga, not to come to Japan solely because you like those things. Because I think the Western world fetishizes Japan quite a bit. And so when people come here because of the otaku culture, uh, they expect it to be one way. But it's actually extremely different, um, and there's just so much more to the country than just that. And I think a lot of people confuse that. Be ready to study and uh, to be open-minded to everything. Not to be stubborn, but try to be open to new culture, yeah. to new language. And uh, first of all, learn Japanese. <laughs> learn Japanese, make Japanese friends. Try to you know, interact with Japanese culture as much as you can and uh, try to understand people. Everyone is different. Every country is different. Just uh, um, be open to uh, this culture, to, Jap to Japan, and uh, you, you will be enjoying it. Information, photos, blogs, and more. A man, well, a person's best friend here to love us through thick and thin. The UK is a nation of dog lovers. I myself have got Bridie, a one-year-old Jack Russell Terrier cross. The most disobedient dog in the world, but I still love her to bits. Come here, Bridie. Come here. Go on, get the ball. Get the ball. Good girl. Good girl. Come on, bring it back. No, Bridie. 
That's not the idea. <laughs> you don't get to play ball if you take it away. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Where's the ball? Where's the ball? OK, I'll come and get it. Here we go, Bridie. Put a little treat on it. Here you go, Bridie. Here you go. There you go. Good girl, Bridie. Come here. Well, I wouldn't be without them for the world. But for some dog owners, that's exactly what they've had to face. Their pets being stolen from them, sometimes right out of their hands or from their own back garden, and with only a very small chance that they'll ever be reunited. I'm Charlotte Robson. Um, we are a family who live in Nantwich in Cheshire. Um, we have two little girls and two boys, our dogs. <laughs> it was a Saturday evening. My husband had nipped out to walk them and I was at home with, with our girls at the time and we just needed an item from the shop so he'd tied them up outside M&S and nipped in for all of three minutes. Like, I know how quick he can walk, you know, he is like literally get it and go. And in that time he came back and our dogs were gone. Well, according to the charity Dog Lost, these dog nappings have jumped 170% between 2019 and 2020. Could this surge in demand for puppies while everyone was bored at home during lockdown be to blame? That phone call of him calling to tell me that was... Oh, I can't even put it into words, to be honest. I feel like the emotion hits all over again. By April 2020, just one month into the first national lockdown, the Kennel Club was receiving 140% more inquiries through its puppy portal. With so many people looking for new furry friends for their homes, but with supply not keeping up, it's clear some criminals have spotted a money-making venture. He ran into the shop um, to alert them straight away. Then he came out and thank goodness that it was right near to a police station. A police car came out at the time, so we ran straight over to them. And it was just then a mad panic of just, he just ran around town and the amount of people that came out to help him was overwhelming. It really, really was. And as a, as a community, everyone just came together that evening and we were looking, you know, until it had gone completely dark and we couldn't look anymore. But those aren't the only issues to contend with. Hello, I'm Dermot Murnahan and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast. How many have you got, Claire? I actually don't have any. I spent what? so, I spent I don't so believe long it. talking about responsible dog ownership <laughs> and how important it is to make sure that you've got the lifestyle. And, you know, in normal times, aside from COVID, I, I travel so much that it, it just yeah. wouldn't be fair yeah. to, to have a dog. Yeah. Don't tell me you've got a cat. No, no. <laughs> I spoke to Claire Calder from Dogs Trust about the scale of the problems our four-legged friends are facing. There's a lot going on, isn't there? A lot of churn, in a way, a lot of demand, a lot of dogs who've got to be foremost in our minds changing hands. Let's talk about the illegal character of what's going on. What is the scale, do we know, of dog theft at the moment in the United Kingdom? Well, so I think um, our concern is that demand for dogs, as you say, is at an all-time high. Um, and prices for some of the UK's most desirable dog breeds are at their highest level in 
three years, if not at an all-time high, um, with costs for some dog breeds increasing month on month since lockdown began last year. So in the first few months of 2021, visits to the dog theft page on our website increased by 780% compared to the same period in 2020. So we don't have any kind of hard facts on how many dogs are being stolen, but we know it's of increasing concern. Yeah, I mean, and it's anecdotal as well, isn't it? All the local websites humming with tales of vans driving around parks and leaving out dog foods and things. But some breeds, and this was even before lockdown, we know, you know, there's a fashion with dogs, isn't there, which is rather unfortunate. Some breeds are more popular than others and more in demand than others. Absolutely. So we work a lot on puppy smuggling as well. So dogs which are illegally imported into the country for sale. So we know through that some of the most desirable breeds that are being imported into the country that can fetch huge, huge profits. Um, and we did some looking into, I guess, the kind of average prices for some of these key breeds in March 2020 and compares them to January 2021 to see kind of this increased demand throughout lockdown, how that's impacted on the kind of prices that um, these breeds can be sold for. So, for example, Chow Chows, we saw a 134% increase. For Pugs, there was a 95% increase. For Dachshunds, it was 87% increase. Um, so some of those really desirable breeds, we, we know the, there's huge demand for them. And, and so unscrupulous dealers and traders can just ask for increased prices to make huge profit from them, unfortunately. Mm. And what have you heard about the methods that the thieves are using? So I think, um, as you mentioned, a lot of what we know about dog theft is, is anecdotal without having hard facts. But we do understand it's incredibly worrying for owners. I think what we would say is it's just really, really important to make sure um, that anywhere you leave your dog is, is secure and try not to leave them on their own. So just make sure that your gardens are secure along with your home and never leave them unattended when you're out and about. Try and keep them in, in sight and make sure they're trained to come back to you, however distracted they are. <laughs> Good luck with that, yeah. It's easier said than done, we know. Yeah, exactly, I know that. Yeah. Really importantly as well, make sure that they're microchipped and keeping your contact details up to date gives you the best possible chance of having your dog return to you if the worst does happen. They're eight and six, they're family Labradors, they would not just run off. I just couldn't process why they would be taken as neutered males, you know, older, older Labradors. And then it was trying to process that, that, that they had been taken and this was, this was actually happening. It was kind of like we'd been picked up and plonked right in our worst nightmare. They are a family. We just put as much out there as possible on, onto social media and tried to be as active as possible on every single lead that we got through. You know, we're, we're aware that so many people have chosen to get a dog during lockdown and we understand why when people have, have more time at home and, of course, everybody would, would love to have a dog. They're amazing animals. Um, but as you say, I think our big worry is that as as the lockdown restrictions begin to ease and people go back to work and crucially once um, the furlough restrictions ease as well and people might be feeling more financial hardship we're worried about what the impact on that will be um, in terms of dogs being handed over to us so at the moment we haven't seen a huge influx we have been taking in some dogs um, where the owners just unfortunately haven't been able um, to look after them as they would have liked but I think the worst is still to come we as I said we haven't seen you know, the lockdown restrictions are, are still there for the most part. They are beginning to ease. But the furlough scheme is, is still operating as well. And I think, unfortunately, the worst is still 
to come in terms of dogs being relinquished in that way. Oh dear. How do you go about, you say you've taken some in, how do you go about rehoming them, you know, with all the COVID restrictions that are in place? Well, we've been doing really well doing virtual rehoming. Um, so we have been using using our website to, to make sure that we can match dogs virtually um, and going through the process like that, which has actually been working really, really well. So last year, we cared for almost 9,400 dogs and found new homes for more than 7,600. But another really good outcome from the pandemic as well is increased fostering of our dogs. So we had almost 2,000 dogs cared for in foster homes in 2020, which is great for them to be in a home environment whilst we find them a forever home. Oh, that sounds interesting. How do you become a dog fosterer? Just get in touch with the Dogs Trust, I guess. Absolutely, although I would warn you that we have been inundated with people <laughs> who are very interested in fostering our dogs, which we massively appreciate, of course. So not all doom and gloom then, but dog theft remains a problem. So what's being done about it? Coming up, I speak to Simon Wellband, a councillor at Harborough District Council in Leicestershire. He's been working with the police to address the increase in dog nappings in his area. The theft of a pet is a crime under the Theft Act, with a maximum of seven years in prison. But in 2016, the Sentencing Council updated guidelines to ensure that the emotional distress caused by the loss of very personal belongings, like pets, was taken into account. Ultimately, it's up to chief constables and police crime commissioners to decide how best to use their resources to address local crimes. And that's what Nottinghamshire Police Force did, creating the first dedicated dog theft officer this year. I'm Chief Inspector Amy Stiles-Jones with Nottinghamshire Police. I'm the new lead within force for dog theft, which I'm really excited about, and it gives us a great opportunity to understand what's been a real serious issue nationally over the last 12 months, and I want to ensure that we put our resources in the right places within force to make sure it doesn't become a local issue. I want to reassure people that if you need to report any concerns about your dogs going missing or being stolen, we will take that seriously. And I also want to make it clear to anybody involved in dog theft or the mistreatment of animals that it will not be tolerated. Meanwhile, in Harborough, Councillor Simon Wellband is also trying to tackle the issue. My name's Simon Wellband. I'm a councillor at Harborough District Council and I'm on the Cabinet at Harborough with responsibility for community safety and I'm also chairman of Harborough Community Safety Partnership. It's terrible. I mean, dog's part of the family. I mean, how is it happening? Have you heard of, you know, um, you know people running up and, and grabbing them or enticing them or jumping into back gardens? What's the method that you've been hearing about? I think there's probably a mixture. So in Harbour, we've had some where breeders have kind of been targeted and, and they've kind of just taken advantage of a kind of a security, you know, weakness to, to steal a number of dogs at the same time. Um, some of them are quite opportunistic. You kind of they see the dog in the front garden and they nick it while nobody's looking. Others kind of, you know, when they're out walking and the, if the owner's not in sight, they can, they can take the dog. So I think, I think it's a mixture, really. Um, but one of the things I've been kind of calling for in, in Harborough and have been uh, saying, you know, quite often is just watch what you put about your dog on 
social media and I understand that people want to uh, put kind of cute pictures of their dogs up on online and put them on Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing, you know, I, I would do too. But unfortunately, thieves and, and potential kind of uh, people who want to take the, your dogs are, are using that, kind of exploiting it to get intelligence, intelligence and then they can, you know, unfortunately take the dog. Yeah, the thieves are watching, my goodness. Yeah, man, that's, that's a horrible thought. Have you, have you got a dog, Simon? Um, I don't. So um, I have, I used to own a Labrador, um, which we had kind of from, from birth and, and, and uh, he was very special to me. And, uh, you know, when he had to be put down a few years ago now, I just, you know, I was, I was really upset. So I know how much a dog is part of your life. Um, it, it, it's a huge, you know, it's part of your family, isn't it? So it's, it's just there. So I, I can only imagine the hurt that's caused when part of your family is is taken away from you in such a cruel way. Yeah, and especially at these times when a lot of people are pretty isolated as well. At least you yeah. you know you've got some kind of companion, and if they're taken away from you as well, it's just awful. Absolutely, and there's there's a lot of people that it's just them and their dog, you know, and they use the dog for us kind of a, that that support, and to have it taken away is it just must be awful. I, I can only imagine how terrible it must be. So the council's buying new scanners, I understand. Okay, um, that's um, yep. to scan the, the microchips. So how will that be used? Are you going to start, you know, stopping people in the parks and saying, I want to check that's your dog? I, I don't think it's going to quite work like that. So we are buying new scanners, as you rightly said. So the police can use those scanners. Um, so what they've told me is that they go on to uh, specific locations within our district that they suspect may be... Uh, there may be stolen dogs and then they can use those scanners to 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 scan the dogs that are there um, so they quite often get intelligence um, which relates to certain sites and then once they get that intelligence they go onto those sites and and scan the dogs that happens quite often and then sometimes they do find stolen dogs unfortunately but um but it does help them to kind of identify those dogs or where there's been suspected dogs uh, stolen and they can they can scan them quite easily yeah are these what what are these devices like are they they handheld things but i, I think know. yes i think they're handheld so you just literally kind of run it up and down the dog and and find the chip and it kind of identifies them okay anything else any other initiatives or investments that you'd like to make that might help protect dogs yeah so I know there's a lot of messaging going out currently from the police and the community safety partnership in harbour about kind of keeping dogs safe some of it comes down to the responsibility of dog owners of course um, i've already mentioned about being careful about what you post online but also when you're out taking your dog for a walk to keep them in view at all times if your dog's out in the front garden, can they be seen in the in the street? And it's just getting that messaging out there that you know you've got to be got to be vigilant. Unfortunately, and that's a sad sad reality that we have to you know think think that way because we shouldn't have to think that way with our dogs. They should be just there and and kind of safe. So it's kind of getting that messaging out there. I know that police as well are doing a lot of proactive work and they do, as I say, visit sites throughout the district where they suspect maybe stolen dogs. They also follow up on every uh, bit of intelligence they get through Crime Stoppers or quite often people report on the Leicestershire Police website as well. 
um, and they have quite good relations with police forces elsewhere in the country and um, uh, if they have a report of dogs being recovered in other parts of the country they always check that against the cases that we have here in harbour and and actually that can lead to dogs being uh, reunited with their rightful owners we had i think four dogs recovered uh, in manchester that were stolen from our area of leicestershire so it, it kind of just shows you that you know that they'll be taken in leicestershire and be recovered quite far away so um so they do have those good relations as well which i think um, i think helps but it sounds like that system needs to be formalized i mean we need nationwide um, dog theft officers in police forces don't we to do that kind of liaison because of course as you say there just because a dog disappears from Leicestershire or Nottinghamshire doesn't mean to say they're going to be found there if they are found at all. Yeah and I, and I think there's there's a case for that to be honest to you know formalize that system I mean they, as I say they have good what they say to me the police locally is that they do have good relations um, but whether that needs to be kind of stepped up, do they need to have specialist dog theft officers? I know they've just appointed one in, I think, Nottinghamshire police have done it. And it's something that I've asked the, the police about, the chief constable about, um, to see if they think about doing the same thing here in Leicestershire as well. Um, I mean, ultimately, it's down to the police to decide how best to deal with these things. But certainly, I think it sends a, a strong message that, it is a priority for the police um, if there is a specific officer um, that we are, you know, onto dog thieves that we're taking it very seriously. And what about the politics of this? I suppose there aren't any politics of this. Presumably, um, on the council, there, you know, political hostilities don't apply to this issue. It must have united everyone across the spectrum. Yeah, it, it does. And it is one of those things that's, you know, a very emotional topic. You know, we're talking about members of your family, effectively. And um, yeah, I, I, there is no difference in opinion, whether you be an opposition councillor or, or you be in the ruling administration as I am. So we're, we're kind of united behind that fact that we all want to do as much as we can to stop this problem. The Home Office tells Sky News that the Home Secretary, along with the Lord Chancellor and the Environment Secretary, met to discuss a cross-government approach to combating dog theft and will be announcing next steps in due course. We heard from Charlotte Robson earlier as she searched desperately for her beloved dogs. The lead came through on Facebook on the Monday night that someone had um, potentially seen them. And then on the Tuesday morning, the police followed that straight up and it was them. Seeing them pull up on that Tuesday morning in two police cars was, was just incredible. It really, really was. And we we're just so grateful and thankful that, you know, it did, it did kind of get as big as it did because that essentially was what got them home. I can't even put into words quite how heart-wrenching it is. Like, I feel like I'm even now, you know, I just can't even... I don't feel comfortable with them being in the garden on their own. And that, you know, that was... They used to love that when we were just pottering around at home and, you know, they'd come in and out. And it has affected us and I think it will affect us for a long time. And it's just... I know I keep hitting the emotions quite a lot on random days and random little triggers of it when it's kind of processing everything that's actually happened. Well, if your dog is missing or stolen, you can contact Dog Lost, a free lost and found dog rescue service at www.doglost, or one word, .co.uk. 
Well, thank you to Charlotte, Simon and Claire for taking part. And thank you to you two for listening to another episode of the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnan. This episode was produced by Lauren Pinkney and our interview's producer, Tatiana Alderson. For more stories like this, do head over to our app and website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, do feel free to leave a review and subscribe. Same place next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.